Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Delivered in a magnificent thread of verse, We Are All So Good at Smiling by Amber McBride offers a message of hope found in a forest full of secrets and monsters. Whimsy is a teenage girl receiving treatment in a mental hospital when she meets a boy named Fairy. Both of them realize they are magical beings battling secrets from a shared past they are unable to fully remember. Amber McBride talks to us about writing this novel for those who may find it hard to get through the darkness of life, her endearing relationship with her grandmother, and we see if she's ready to break the bank for a pair of those Beyonce tickets. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today we are joined with the wonderful, wonderful guest, Amber McBride. So a little info. Yes. For those who act like they don't know, but need Mm -hmm. to know. Uh, Amber McBride estimates that she reads about 100 books a year. That's good. I I I need to set that as a goal. We would we would fail. We already know. <laughs> Why set us up for failure? Well, you know, New Year, new us. <laughs> Overrated. <laughs> Her work has been published in literary magazines, including Plowshares and Provincetown Arts. Her debut YA novel in verse, Mima was published in August 2021 and went on to be named a National Book Award finalist. She is a professor of English literature and creative writing at the University of Virginia and lives in Charlottesville. Her sophomore novel in verse is We Are All So Good at Smiling, which is our February YA Book of the Month feature. We would like to bring to our show the one and only Miss Amber McBride. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we are we are just excited, if not more, to have you all. Grace your presence with us. It really means the world to us to be able to speak with you. Your book is amazing. Yes, um, it might be my my new favorite YA novel. Oh my and, gosh! Thank you. And, so I, and I am not shitting you. When I told Veronica, I'm like, I think um, we have we we have a both we both have a favorite book um, of YA that was in the podcast too. We talked about it. If you're listening, you know. But I'm like, ugh. It's like, ooh, this is, ooh, this ooh. is, yeah. Oh this, Thank this you is. so much. There's so many wonderful young adult books specifically coming out like now and that have come out. So that's such a big compliment. Thank you. Yes. Um, they have to live up to your book in my okay. head. Um, <laughs> but before we start all this um, wonderful conversation about your book, um, we start with a little bit um, getting to know you portion. Um, this first question uh, is from my friend, Veronica. 
Uh-huh. Um, so we know based off of what you've written in your in the back of your book that you love all things Beyonce. So um we just want to know and by we me um <laughs> Beyonce has released her uh her most recent studio album Renaissance last yeah. summer set the world on fire yes um and I feel like there's a tour announcement that's going to be coming soon and so I'm just curious do you have a, a special Beyonce tour savings account like set aside like do you know like I'm waiting to just yeah. You, you know, the one where like every time I get like a payment, I'm like a little bit needs to go into this account. I do, but I also, so I'm a huge Beyonce fan. Um, specifically, if we're going to be honest, I became a huge Beyonce fan after her self-titled Beyonce with the pink letters. When she started doing whatever she wanted was when I started really loving her. I've always liked her, but then I was like, I am in this. Um, but I'm also a K-pop fan of BTS. So like I have two savings accounts there for BTS and Beyonce. Um, It's very important. Uh, But those tickets, it's also just like everyone, the whole thing with the Taylor Swift tickets recently, it's like, how do we get them? What if we can't, like, what if there's like a long waiting, like I'm stressed, but I'm ready. I am ready. I am ready. The feeling is mutual. (laughs) I think. I think she probably has purposely like waited to see how everybody else's rollout has been. I, you know, she perfectly times everything. So I think, yeah, and she knows y'all going to have my tickets, right? Okay. Um, and so I'm glad that you led with the BTS because. Yes. Cause they're very expensive. All the tickets are very expensive, but who's your favorite member? And I'm going to cause trouble for you now. I might. <laughs> oh, you're, you're gonna ask me my favorite memory. Okay, for, I'm on. I stand all members of BTS. First Good of all, you. I'm one of those people. But um, my favorite member. I'm always biased to the rap line because I'm a poet. Um, and they're brilliant when you translate their lyrics. It's just excellent. Um, but I'm also a workaholic. Um, you'll see with like the book releases I have. So Yoongi is my favorite, or Min Yoongi Suga, um, because he puts out. He produces so many other k-pop people's songs he's just in it and i just love how much work he does so i love min yoongi or his rap name augusti but yeah i love them both have you had a chance to see either beyonce bts oh oh i feel like there's a <laughs> moment interesting. that's um, for the cause <laughs> here's the thing um bts was in la uh last november ish um got tickets and Things with Me Moth, I either would be at a certain thing I had to be at with Me Moth or at this BTS concert. And so I had to do the moth thing. But my best friend took my book with her and she like took selfies with it in different places of where we would have been sitting. But when I say I had tickets, I mean, I had tickets for all four nights that they were. Yes. I like, believe- that's how we do it here. Yeah. I believe like, Beyonce, you. I'm going to follow her up the East Coast. Yes. Like that. Yes. When people are like, Amber, you don't have kids. What do you spend your money on? And I'm like, on Beyonce and BTS. Like, I need. No shame. I, I appreciate the honesty because like, you know, I have I have friends that are like part of the, the army group. Yes. But I hate to everybody. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I'm because I have I have a child. I can't follow as much as when I was younger. Mm. So. You know, I like I like to share the joy and I love watching them because they did a lot for, you know, Asia, 
Asians in general in the world. So yeah. we can talk about them all day. Um, this comes up in like every podcast I do. I'm yeah. always amazed by the love everyone has of Beyonce and BTS. And I'm like, it's a universal respect. Everyone music, is, music is universal. Yes. Um, what makes a good happy day for you? Wow, you're going to just come in here with the, the hard questions. A happy day. Um, I think for, for me, just not having a very packed schedule. I'm a very much a person who doesn't like to plan because I don't know what the vibes are going to be when I wake up, you know? And so when I can like go about my day in a way that I don't have anything scheduled, that's generally a happy day. Um, if I get to hang out with animals, that makes it an excellent day. Uh, but my my dog passed away in March. I'd had her for 13 years. Um, so we used to hang out all the time. And every day was a happy day when I was hanging out with her. But generally just like when I can chill and write, I love writing. So like when there's nothing else on the schedule and I can just vibe, write, binge watch a TV show, I'm a homebody. So it's just the, if you can make it cozy, look, I'm about it. Like light a candle, make a homemade dinner. Like that's me. It's a good day. That's the life right there. You yes. don't need to be in the streets. You just no. need to yeah, <laughs> I see my students because I my students will be they follow me on social media so I follow them back and they're like in DC and then in Charlottesville and then I'm like go to sleep like sit down <laughs> get a blanket what are you doing they're yeah. so funny to me yeah sleep is the, the 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 best thing that you can give your adult self just the rest yeah and even like I was reading an article that's interesting about rest and it was talking about how even our generation, like millennials and everything like that, we don't know how to rest correctly. Like mm -hmm. sometimes like resting isn't like binge watching a show. It's watching like an episode and then like reading a book. And like, it's not like we do a lot of things like to excess. And it was like talking about how you recharge um, is really important because sometimes you rest, but you don't feel rested. And that's interesting as well. Yeah. So now we, we dive into the book. Yeah. Um, that I absolutely love. Um, so we we you know we start we start with this book in verse, and we see we see two like very very lovable characters, um, Faye and Whimsy. Um, but how this book was written was um, there was a lot of fairy tale and folklore um, that is that is incorporated in this book. So we just wanted to know you know there's a multitude of these available or in is inexistent? How did you choose these specific stories and characters to relate a story of uh, Faye and Whimsy? Uh, thank you for that question, it's really good. Uh, I guess it's twofold. Uh, as a writer, uh, I have always been really interested in the oral tradition or like the fairy tales. I think that folklore is often the history of the people and then like history is just told by an oppressor. Like, you know what I mean? Like whoever won. And I find this honesty in folklore from around the world that I'm always drawn to. I think that every time I visit somewhere new, I'm excited to hear the story that's not in the book. Like the, the, the story that's kind of scary where then you're like in Spain, terrified in your hotel room because someone told you about a vampire story they have. And that's okay. And I love that about them. And so for me, I used a lot of African-American, but I also used a lot of indigenous stories because... 
one, they're not always highlighted um, as much as other uh, fairy tales that we hear about or folklore. And two, this sense that anybody can get stuck in this haunted garden of depression. Like it's not an exclusive kind of, oh, if you have your life together, oh, if you're Baba Yaga or Mama Wata, you're not going to get depressed and get caught in this garden. Like people who otherwise people think have everything going right can be depressed and they can get stuck there. And so this idea that what do we as like when you're a kid put on a pedestal more than a fairy tale or folklore, like, or a princess and imagine that they can also be depressed and stuck in this garden. And so this universality of like mental health awareness and us realizing that um, it's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something that we need to talk about more and, you know, have more resources, especially for young people. So there's a saying that goes, there's always three sides of a story. Um, your side, their side, and the truth. Um, mm. You have presented that to us as the book is, you know, beginning to to end or the closure for Faye for and Whimsy. Yeah. Um, it was an ingenious way of presenting the situation to anybody that is going through what all of these characters are currently experiencing. Why, why was that um, how you chose to explain your, to your readers um, how these difficult realities work in real life? It's another good question. The best questions I've gotten so far. Thank you so much for these. I really love important. your book so much. <laughs> um, so I guess I think it all comes back to when I was writing this book, um, I was in a pretty bad depressive episode and my therapist told me something that I tell like everybody now. Um, and she said that all your feelings are valid. That doesn't mean that they're true. Mm -hmm. Um, and that hit me because it's like, yes, I feel like it's the end of the world. I feel this, but guess what? It's not. And your feelings are valid, but that the conclusion you've come to because of those feelings is not true. You know what I mean? And so I kind of was playing with that in the story of, um, fairy and whimsy feel this way for a reason, like in their feelings, everything they're feeling are valid, but that can still not be the truth of what happened. That still cannot be the truth. And when we're in our own minds or when we're in a depressive episode, we often can't see the truth or we often have trouble seeing the level-headed kind of, uh, way. And that's why I always tell when I have my students who ask me who have clinical depression and they ask me like, well, how do you get through? And it's like, when I have a good day, I journal about it. And then I go back to it and I remind myself what a good day is. Like, don't trust your depressed mind. It's it's not, it's toying with you. And I think that that's kind of the um, idea there is that all the things that happened were valid and true, but the conclusion that each of them came to because of that wasn't necessarily true. Mm -hmm. So playing with that a bit. But I love that, that there's always three sides to a story. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when reading this book, I, I thought a lot about like how the mind is a very, very powerful thing that we don't even have the answers to on how it truly fully functions. But one thing that is true is that it has the power to give you a sense of confidence of that power to be able to push through things. But it also likes to play tricks on you. And I, especially when you're in that depressed state. Mm -hmm. um, and I know all about that of like thinking that this thing is true and then having to switch out. Um, but one of the things that I, I that stood out within your book is a particular moment when Winsby is coming back home. And um, so there's a quote and it says, mornings, dad will make pancakes and fried eggs. 
He'll smile widely, but it won't reach his eyes. And this quote from the story is when she's back home from the mental health hospital and um, the smile and the eyes to me are like the truth tellers mm-hmm. um, and as well as the biggest deceivers. Mm-hmm. And the title, We Are All Good at Smiling, drives that notion home that you can never really know where someone is mentally just because they are able to put on this mask of happiness. Will you walk us through how you decided that you wanted to steer this boat of this novel in this direction of talking about the masking of pain? Mm. Well, I think that all of us in this talk right now as women of color are taught to mask our pain. Like we're never ever taught that we can feel how we're feeling or we can work through something. We're taught that we're just supposed to hide it and be okay. Um, And I find that very frustrating. And I find that very uh, not realistic. If we want to grow as people and human beings and be more empathetic people, we have to be empathetic towards ourselves first. Um, So I think that for me, I, I've always talked openly about mental health. Um, my friends, my family know that I've suffered with clinical depression my whole life, but like, they're so confused by it because I'm always getting my work done, smiling, putting this many books out, becoming a, uh, an assistant professor, you know? And so they confuse this idea of, oh, she's fine. She's getting things done. And depression can look a lot of different ways. But one thing I know that everybody with depression does is try to convince the people they care about that they're okay. Um, because they don't, they feel like a burden. Um, they feel like they're too difficult to deal with. And then this idea that like, we're all literally going through life, whether you have anxiety, what, it doesn't matter what the trauma is trying to convince other people we're okay. When none of us are, we, we need hugs. We need, you know, we need help. And so I was really interested in this idea of who you pretend with and who you don't. And at what point can you stop pretending? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that idea of masking that, uh, also made me just realize how much I mask um, just with my students when I'm at work or how you're acting. But like, also, I guess this goes back to what I said earlier, like my perfect day being cozy at home. I was talking literally with my therapist about this yesterday. I have therapy on Wednesdays. Um, She was like, do you feel like you feel happiest at home alone because you don't have to pretend for anybody? And I was like, wow, maybe it's just because I get to chill (laughs) because I just get to be like, ha. Um, so yeah, this idea again, that we're all so good at smiling. And what's really great is my editor, Liz Sabla, that that was not the original title. We're all so good at smiling. Originally, I wanted to kind of have it as me whimsy to go with me moth. Cause they're like, to me, they're like similar and, and different in the same way. And then they were like, no, that's going to confuse people. People were already confused by the title me moth with the parentheses. And I was like, okay. And then she came to this line in the poem and she was like, that's it. And I was like, that's why you're an editor. Nice work. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's you're right. And so I've been obsessed with the title ever since, but that's all on my editor finding that line in the book and being like, wait, no, this is the thesis of this book. Yeah. Cause I saw the title automatically. I told Danny, I said, we're reading this. Yes. I don't I know, know what it's about. I said, the yes. title alone is just like, it just did something to my soul. Like, mm, yes. It knocks. You're like, oof, I've done that. Yeah. I've just been smiling yeah. or not feeling the full extent of your emotions. That's why, like when you hang around kids, I don't have any kids. I don't plan on having kids, but I have a lot of friends who have kids. And one of the most refreshing things to me about children is if they're mad, they're mad. 
Mm-hmm. And if they're sad, they cry. And I'm like, if we could just all have access to our emotions. And then the thing is, five minutes later, they're good because they felt those feelings. Um, I just really admire that about kids. And I wish we could all still access that without putting all these like masks. Can I cry here? Can I feel these feelings now? I think it comes from like, you know, you have an adult that's dealing with a child that's going through those emotions. And, you know, you have a lot of people, i.e. me, I know I've done it of like, you know, like stop crying. I can't talk to you right now. I need you to stop crying. And then you have that moment of like, I just need this child just to like finish this emotion. And then you want to walk away, but they don't want you to walk away because they want to live through that emotion with you. So it is a very like- it's complex. See, this is why I said I don't have kids. So like <laughs> I'm only experiencing this as, you know, the fun aunt who comes in and is like, oh, no, I can handle this. So I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that's a lot. And then once again, like um, even as I guess I think it's interesting. I talked to this with my dad, even as parents, are you allowed to show your emotions to your children? And to a way we don't. But like, would that be helpful? Like, it's just so interesting on how we manipulate our feelings to the situation that we're we're in like that's so funny because I'm like here I have a toddler which is at peak emotion and and you know when he cries like that my my response would always be like um you need to stop crying you need to be a big boy or blah 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 and when I was reading your book I was kind of like maybe I need to change it up and just be like well whenever you're done you can like talk to me and then yeah, like, feelings in yeah. whatever space where it's not right in front of you so you don't have to hear it but and like he, I don't know I don't think that this is the right answer but yeah. I think that it is interesting um on what we decide and I think obviously I'm very aware uh that I don't have a child 24 7 and that's a whole different thing of your patience your emotions um as well but yeah I this I think we're all just I just want us all to feel our feelings in healthy ways. Yeah. And also like trying to break that cycle of like, you can't be like, you know, you can't show emotion or you have to stop this. Because sometimes when I, I, you know, I would tell my child I'm disappointed or this is kind of like annoying me. Mm. And they'd realize like, oh, so this is what annoying means. But then like, yeah, so we tend not to do that to another person that we care. I mean, he's three. I don't really know if he's picking it up, but you know. But yeah. It's a cycle. Exactly. And I think that like, like I look at my parents and I think from like, my parents would say things like, don't cry or like, tell me how you're feeling, which is still a giant step from their parents being like, get this work done. This is what you need to do. You know what I mean? Like, I think every generation we're getting closer. Um, and I think for as uh, women of color, like we just had a different experience on the caliber we have to be at anyways. And so mm-hmm. our parents tend to be tougher on us. And as we try to make these leaps and bounds, I think there's this, there's room for softness now. And I love that. I love that for all of us. Yeah. Yay. We're winning at some, some degree. <laughs> some degree. We're, it's, it's, it's steps. It's a process. Yes. So there was magical realism, sci-fi, folklore in this book. There are aspects of like social horror, even dystopia and history. Um, to me, your book has kind of like broken like genres and like boundaries. And I feel like it would continue to do so the more people that read it. How the hell did you manage to encapsulate all of these things and manage it and like and write it in verse? Like how 
Amber McBride. How? <laughs> oh. Um, I'll be honest with y'all. Uh, one verse I went to my MFA program was in poetry. So poetry is like my first thing. Um, so it does feel quite natural for me to write in verse. The second one is me moth, which is over here. I wrote in like a month. There were barely any edits. It was chill. Okay. We're also good at smiling. Um, I think we went for through four rewrite, full rewrites, just full rewrites of it, like from the bottom up. Um, I could not, like you're saying, figure out how to put all that in there um, and the story to still make sense and be entertaining and be light and airy, but also dark in certain spaces. Um, so it was a lot of, it was one of these things where it's a craft. It was like, okay, I have the general outline. Now let me rewrite it six times to see <laughs> which way is the best. Um, it was a lot of work put into this one. But I think for me, I don't really, genres are for people who, I don't know, need boundaries, I guess, and what they're reading. Like, I love a book that surprises me. Like, what's the last book? I have to go find it. It was one book I read recently. I was like, I don't even know what genre this book is in. And I find that most interesting. You know what I mean? Um, so I was like, can we put dystopian? Can we put magic? Can we put fantasy? Can we put a fae and a witch and hoodoo in the same book um, and make it work? And I think that it the book is something I'm proud of. So in my opinion, when I become proud of something, that's when I'm like, okay, it's time to stop editing because you can edit forever. Um, and yeah, I think that we we did that. And I think that when you, I guess this being my second book, and I'm very lucky with the success that Moth had, is I felt a little bit more confident that my readers would go a little bit further with me. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, they might just keep, reading even though they're like what is going on um and so that was another part of it I don't know that I could write this as a debut and feel like people would be like okay um so there's a lot that went into that uh but yeah forget genres let's just mix them all I think we should just constantly be breaking the expectations of what a fantasy book is what a verse book is anything it happens to be yeah that's so good yes yes because like we we read a lot of stuff so when like when like a book hits me and I'm like, I'm, I'm getting all the things I'm getting lost. Yay. You know, it's so it's fun. It's, it's such a good feeling when, you know, when you like, ah, it, I know there's a TikTok thing when it's like the book that you wish you could read again for the first time. And those books, like really, while you're reading them, it's like, you're stuck in them. And I'm like, I want to experience this again, every time. Like I read Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. When I read it for the first time, I was like, this is a memoir, a history book in verse. Like I was so in it and I read it in like three hours. And then I was like, I should probably read it again from the beginning. It's like those kinds of books that really, they change you fundamentally. I love it. Yeah. There's a, a one book that I always go back and and read. And every time I go back and read it, I'm always finding something that I hadn't mm -hmm read before or understood because my earliest time that I read it I was like uh what 15 years old and so to read it now when you're older and you're like oh man this is what they were talking about in this book it really Which means book is it? their eyes were watching God oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so that yeah. one I could just like oh it means so much now at 43 than it was when mm. I was you, you can read that those books those kinds of like for me that's like the bluest eye and certain books like that where it's like you do every single time you read it um 
it's just something different you get from it and it, it changes you uh fundamentally but yeah I just I love books obviously I read a lot I love books <laughs> so like I said um I'm telling it to the world that this book is one of the best YA books I have read in a long time the story explores realities that are very hard to deal with as humans. Um, but to us, your, you know, your execution was flawless. It it worked. However many times you did it, took out whatever added, it really worked. So not until 2019, when I suffered from like postpartum depression, that I really felt like what the pain of being sad. Like I never really truly understood everything until I was in that fog. It was like a year, close to two years of just living in a fog. It was hard. I don't know with the pandemic, it was layers. And I was, a, I, I'm also a healthcare worker. And oh. yeah, so with a little baby. So when I read Fairy Story in chapter 13, um, I'll, I don't know if I had the capability to read it and not like tear up. So maybe I won't read it, but my favorite line um on it is um when your body forgets how to cry you bleed instead mm. I like I stop and I'm like what is she doing to me <laughs> like I'm not ready for this or am I <laughs> it was so so many things um but you know it has captured so well what people feel but not able to explain most of the time you know to me it was an instant I'm like oh she she gets it she understands me and I'm like, I'm not alone. I'm not yeah. alone. I was never alone. Um, how was it to write those feelings into words? And what were the things that you allowed yourself to feel and go back to, you know, when writing those delicate moments? There's a lot. But to me, that was like, ah. Uh, first of all, I don't know. I got a little teary because any everyone who reads the book and tells me that they had that feeling for a moment where they weren't alone is literally the whole reason I wrote the book. Um, and so that always just means so much to me from as a person who, you know, when I was younger, definitely felt very much alone in that kind of depression. But like, I guess for me, it was rough. It was rough to write the book because it, it meant confronting a lot of uh, things I would gloss over in therapy um, and not really address. It also earlier versions of this book had more examples from my own life but I found that I could not write them honestly because I couldn't even look at them mm. yet um and so it was one of those things where I had to put myself in the position as if my younger self was a character was whimsy and like kind of detached from it to be able to write it truly but like those things where I know that everyone's felt this where whatever some tragedy, whatever has happened is that you've cried so much or you've cried none, but you can't feel anything. And it's yeah. almost just empty. Um, but something has to come out because there's so many emotions still in you. And it was one of those things where as a person who, I, as a college professor who knows a lot of students who go through this and a lot of students who self-harm and some who come talk to me about it, like, articulating that um I don't know it was like just one of those things where it was all these experiences I had had all these young people who had trusted me with their stories and trying to get the phrasing right but for me I think that poetry I don't think that I could have ever written this in prose I think that the thing about poetry in this is that it says poetry isn't just 
the words, it's the feeling of the words, right? It's like, it sinks into you in a different way than a beautifully written sentence. Like I could say that phrase in 12 sentences, or I could say it the way that you described it. And I think it was at that ciphering out and just trying to get at the grit of the truth that took the most time and took the most drafts and took a lot of introspection of, wait, when I'm depressed, let me meditate on that worst moment in my life and think about how does it actually feel in a way that I could describe to, to people. So it was a lot of introspection. Um, at one point, my therapist asked me, Amber, why are you writing a book about clinical depression during one of your deepest depressive episodes? Um, and my answer always was, and I've tweeted about this, is that young people make me brave. Like mm -hmm. knowing that this is something that I'm writing for young adults and will reach a lot more people, hopefully, um, it was like, how can I not? I'm in a safe space. I've got a support system around me. How can I not try to investigate these things so that other kids, young people might feel like they're not alone? And that's priceless. And so it's a combination of having an amazing group around me, my amazing editor, amazing agent, amazing parents that put me in a place where I could be so vulnerable, where I could really try to get at the feelings um, that Whimsy and Fairy were experiencing. Yeah, that to me, that is the bravest thing. That's the most courageous thing, because like introspection is not not something that you choose to do on a daily basis. That's like looking at yourself in the mirror and be like, what what is happening, really? Like it mm -hmm. it took me a while to be like, because I know that feeling like you're empty, you're tired. You want like you want to scream, but you don't have the energy to scream, but you're heavy. Mm. You, know, you you can't get it out. There's there's nothing else. And you, your mind is like blank. But there's also so many feelings, but no words. It's like this constant um, juxtaposition or duality happening. Like when you're in that feeling that you're describing, it's like, I have all the emotions. I have none, no emotions. I want to run away and scream. I can't move. Like it's, it's just at the same time, um, it's frustrating and it feels impossible. And that's why one of the terms in the book, the only way out is through is this idea is like, it doesn't really matter if you're inching along or running like if you can get through this you'll you'll get to the end and the end is when you'll remember um or you'll come out of that haze a little bit just to understand like no no, no things do get better um but yeah I think and I think that another difficult part about writing this book was making sure that there was also hope in an honesty talking about the deepest of depression because you don't want to hand a book to young people and be like um good luck you know like that's not helpful <laughs> um I might get teachers coming to me but I think that the idea was uh I don't think it's giving thing in the book away to say like whimsy and fairy think they might have been in the garden before is that like I think that every time I go through a bout of depression I'm more assured that I have the tools to get through it again mm -hmm. um and it seems like an easier way out to maneuver because I understand what's happening a bit more. So that idea that like, it's okay. You you find yourself here, but it's okay because you can get out. You can do this. You have tools um, that can help you. Yeah. We were literally talking about, you know, that after I finished your book, like I was telling Veronica, there was this overarching feeling of hope mm. that, you know, like, you know, and she said like, yeah, like it's, it's to tell the children or anybody that you have to go through this, but at the end of it all, there's hope. And, you know, you, you didn't, you know, cause I, to me, like, you know, when, when Faye 
when Faye said to Whimsy, like, stop using the word sad because it's too cliche and people think take it lightly. It's kind of like when people would say like, oh, you know, everything is going to be OK. It shall pass. But then it's like just words. But you yeah. didn't you didn't have to say that you you did it in that novel. You you know, you you did it. And then when you close the book, you're like, oh, yeah, we we can do this shit. You know, like <laughs> we we're going to be all right. The kids yeah. are going to be all right. Thank you. That means so much. And I think that it's a di- it was a difficult thing to try to to balance. Um, but yeah, like I said, this is definitely a book that went through a lot of a lot of revision to get it to where it is. Let me ask you this because um, I'm always fascinated by books that's written in lyric poetry form. What is it that you find about this style of writing that? you can do that you can't do in a regular typical fashion um that's a really good question I was asked this before and it really came down to so my third book that's coming out in October is not in verse um it's at my first middle grade and it's in prose and my first two were in verse and I think that what I came down to is when the quote thesis or the point or the thing I want you to get from the book is not something you can describe, but a feeling, I have to use poetry. When the thing that I want you to get from it in the book is something that you can describe, like, oh, this is about, um, I don't know, what's my next book about? I have too many books in my head right now. Oh, this is about, well, that next one is about white, white supremacy and what it does to young people and how it's unacceptable. That's clear, right? Um, this book is about hope and pain and fear and it's not one word, it's a feeling. And so I had to use poetry because poetry is about feeling, about feeling your way through. Um, so yeah, I think that it really is kind of cliche, but it's really that that stereotype about poetry that it, it says the most important things in the fewest words um, and often things that we can't actually articulate with a collection of words. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. It comes to the feeling aspect. I have one other book. Wait, am I going to tell a secret on here? No, I can't. Never mind. It's okay. <laughs> I have another book in verse that might be coming out in a, a year or so. And it's another verse where it was like a feeling that I was trying to get at more than a, I want kids to understand this about white supremacy and how it's damaging or whatever it happens to be. Um. Going back to to the hope conversation, you know, like I love a good playlist book pairing. I do. Um, And readers will be able to find this playlist in the back of your book. Walk us through your decision to include those particular songs that you chose and what it meant uh, for you while writing your book to have it. And, And the reason why I wanted to touch a little bit back on the hope section is because you have uh a change is gonna come by Sam Cooke. Uh, stuck in there and that song is a song that always makes me cry and it always makes me feel like I'm in this this the middle section of like lord our world is just truly fucked up (laughs) but I do know that there is a change that's going to come and we're seeing certain changes happen but it's that like space in the song that is just telling you just to hold on a little bit more you can wow. you can go through it. So just just talk to us about this, the different songs that you have within it and, and what that meant for you when writing your book. Um, well, I always put together playlists and I usually play them on repeat while I'm writing my book. I'm a listen to music writer. 
Um, there's also a playlist in Mima at the end of the book. And specifically for this one, it was this combination of these like song, like a change is going to come these like aching, sorrowful songs with these like upbeat EXO beat by Beyonce. Like there, there's like, it's this duality again of what's happening in the book of like this lightheartedness of being young, but also this almost despair. I remember one time, I think it was on American Idol, someone sang a change is going to come. And when they were singing it, they were smiling. And I was like, this person does not understand what this song means. And it was like one of those things. It was like, there's something so guttural about that song um, from the first verse that really, for me, um, a lot of the garden scenes were written with that song on, on repeat because it was just like, when we talk about feeling again, like when I say, when I write in verse music too, like that feeling of like, when this, he comes in and says, I was born by the river in a little tent and just like the river I've been running ever since. Like, how do I get that feeling of hearing that verse for the first time into a book? And so I'm always really interested because lyrics are poetry as well. So it's, it's really working together um, in that sense. But yeah, I think it's a combination. I'm forgetting all the songs on the playlist, to be honest, when that's, you're working on That's page. when I knew your favorite might have been Sugar because it has August D at the end of it. Yes, <laughs> strange and RM. So, ooh, Edge of the Dark. If you ever listen to that song, um, first of all, like the edge of darkness, just in the idea of depression. Um, but it's got these like very, I guess, abrasive drum beats with throughout the song that almost sounded like the end was coming and like for something in my head that really like worked. Um, so yeah. And then I put a spell on you, Nina Simone. It's like sassy, but like textured in a way, like there's something almost that you can feel in that song. Um, so yeah, and it's just this old school songs all mixed with rap, mixed with others, all of them. Yeah, really just came down to um, a mixture of lyrics, the actual musicality in the song and how it helped me write the book, like the feeling in it. Um, and sometimes just the titles that were really, really good. Without Fear is another good one. I just really loved that title. And then I listened to the song and I was like, this is perfect. Um, but yeah, anytime you listen to these 11 songs, those are the 11 songs that for a year I was listening to on repeat while writing this book. It was so um, good. Like while driving, like driving to work, I was like, man, this play is so good. Cause I'm like, you know, when you like, I, I can't read while I listen cause I can't like half my brain, but when I drive, I like to listen to things. So when I, I when I was reading your book, I was like, let me hit this playlist up. So <laughs> oh, yes. It was so good. I'm just like, ah, that's why, that's why this is so dark. I love it so much. I love music. It's, if you follow me on social media, I'm always sharing music. And I used to be, I was a ballet dancer until I was like 20. Um, and so like music, movement, poetry all work at the same time for me. And so even when I'm like writing, like sometimes I get up and dance or move to get to the next verse. So like for me, it's like a very, I don't know, it's like a full body experience, um, specifically when writing in verse. So gotta have the music. Yes. Gotta have the vibes. You already have your soundtrack in case someone decides that they want to turn this into, right? Uh, Movie. Hey, so look, put these songs in here. Thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> yes. I just helped them along, you know? Yes. You know, quicken the process for production. Yeah. Exactly. I'm just trying to make it easier for them. You know, I was talking 
to a friend about this and they were like, if someone, a director did this movie, who would you want? And I was like, Guillermo del Toro. Um, yes! I'm so sorry. We didn't mean to yell. <laughs> no, but right. Because once I said it and you yes. think of his work, I was like, he would, he would mess. He would, he would be brilliant. He would yes. make this terrifying, but like excellent at the same time. Please, Guillermo, please. I love him. Hello. <laughs> hey let me call call some people (laughs) but he does that doesn't he in his movies there's there's a haunting aspect with the realism like you think of like the shape of water yeah perfect yes yes that that it could exist in those universes yes (laughs) i agree um so like i said mental health and mental illness has been Talked more in brown and black communities a little bit, especially the past couple of years. Um, when I started 2023, my goal for the year as a reader and as a human being is to focus on advocating for mental health even more. Because it took it just only took me three years to finally be brave enough to be like, yes, let's talk about it. You know, because I need to do more for myself and then for the people that are suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have this platform that we can read books and talk to great people like you and consume books and, you know, literature and stuff that can help us all. But, you know, how how does it feel when like people come up to you and say like, you know, I, your work helped me understand, helped me find release and helped me find solace on the times that I was feeling the most down? I think it's just priceless. I think that usually if someone, usually a young person comes up and says that to me, it ends up in us hugging and crying a little bit, (laughs) having a moment uh, just to be, you know, I don't know. I think that that's anybody who creates, whether it's an artist, a musician, like you want to move people and you want them to feel like there's unity in the world as instead of like dissonance. And I think that when someone says that to you, it's just, that was what I, that was the whole goal. And so um yeah it it gives you energy to keep working trying another draft keep going and um yeah it just means I think that it's it's one of those things that it's priceless and I've said with this particular book I love me moth it's my baby it's my debut but this one like you were saying yourself it took you a long time to address and really be able to talk about mental health because we're taught not to and I'm lucky I had parents in my 20s so I was starting to talk and learn about this but like even the idea of writing a book was terrifying about it um and so one of those things where it's like I just it makes me feel even better that I stuck with it through all those drafts if even one person um is affected by it in a positive way yeah because it's 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 hard to you know it's it's easy to to mouth words and like express it like shallow in a shallow form like yeah you know mental health we do a couple posts and like call it call it that but to actually like be able to reflect and actually absorb what is really happening and accept the fact that yeah you went through some you went through some crap but it's okay and maybe other people are in crap and maybe you can help them but not just lip service yeah like physical, like a way to help. And I think that that's the thing, right? Is um, 
I think there's a fear of not saying the right thing or doing the right thing when we're helping our friends or people we see and need. And I think that people forget that just saying, how are you doing is a huge way of helping. Someone might not have asked that person that for days. Um, I think that anything that you're doing with that person's well-being and in mind with good intention, it's it's not going to be construed as a as a doing anything wrong. Um, and I think that that's important. I think about like my dad, when he sees that I'm down, he'll just be like, Hey, want to play a game of pool? Like, I don't like playing pool that much, but like, it's the idea that he, what he's saying is, Hey, you want to spend some time together? So you're not in your own head. And that's priceless. You know what I mean? And, um, if we just start to reach out more and stop being so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And if we do say the wrong thing, learning from that and being better the next time, like it's okay. It's okay to be, um, to say the wrong thing or, or to, to make a mistake. I think about that, like as a professor, um, I had a student come up to me like two semesters ago and she said, I'd loved the reading, but you didn't put any trigger warnings. And it was a bit startling for me. Mm-hmm. And immediately I was like, why, why haven't I been putting trigger warnings on my readings for my students? I need to start doing this. And so the first thing I say is thank you so much. That will not happen again. You know what I mean? Like there's, I don't think that like critique and getting better is about us having these conversations and that's important. That's, that's what I hope we have more conversations and more ways that we can feel like we're tangibly helping uh, our communities. Yes. Genuine effort, I think is what counts. Yeah. Yeah. Genuine is the word. Yeah, definitely. So you thanked a lot of people in your acknowledgements. You keep mentioning, you know, the people that have surrounded you that, let you be vulnerable so you can write this book. Um, how important is that community for you? Um, once again, price, priceless. I don't, well, the, the truth is, and it says it in here, that I wouldn't be alive without that community. It's that simple. Um, and not, I think that the thing about, I'm so lucky to have friends and family who don't make me feel difficult to love don't make me feel dangerous to love, um, despite having clinical depression. And it's those people who, it comes down to this thing where you look in the mirror and you might not like yourself. You might not feel good. You might feel horrendous. You might feel like everything's horrible. And then it comes down to, I just don't want to leave these people Mm because I'll miss them. And I think that people don't realize how much, um, that makes a difference. I think I once told my my mom and dad is that sometimes I was afraid to to leave because I feel like I would even miss you when I was dead. Mm-hmm. And that's like a a real thing is that these people make me want to stay and young people make me want to stay. And so I think having that community is important and as we continue to talk more about mental health creating that community um that is accessible to more young people is is really the difference between life and death sometimes. And it's a scary thing to talk about and it's a scary thing to say, but yeah, I think that I wouldn't be here without them. And I really uh, appreciate them for, for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, that hits home for me and special shout out to people making plans with me. <laughs> mm. That if nobody made any plans, I don't know if I would be here today. You know, it's just like I know I gotta, 
I want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore thing, but I got this, I got this appointment set with this person. So I got to make it to it. Let me at least get to this wedding. Let me get to this baby shower. It's those things. And that community right there is what keeps people, helps people to move through if you're lucky to have a really good support system. And for those who who might not have that, you know, you hope that they can be able to go and, and seek that out some kind of way, or that someone can go and find them to be able to help build, even if that community is just, a, a just them and another person. But it's really important to have somebody around you that, you know, that you can just be like, all right, I think I can like... <laughs> get up today let me wash yeah. my- <laughs> get up I, I can go get this cup of coffee they're not gonna ca- I wash my face I brush my teeth they don't care I'm in my pajamas like <laughs> that kind of thing you need those people um in your life and kind of like going off that like I think that that's why I know that um self-harm depression everything during the pandemic has the numbers have risen I think a lot of that is that we were so secluded um that the people who you would usually go to their baby shower, whatever, those things were canceled. You know what I mean? And I think I see young people and I see like my students now who, when the pandemic started, would have been like sophomores in high school. Um, and now they're like freshmen in college who literally um, felt like enti- an entire like experience of high school was taken from them. Those friendships weren't being able to be built in the way they would have like normally been because they would have had homecoming and prom and whatever it happens to be. Um, and I worry about the effects of that long term um, in in all of us, but especially in in, in young people. Yeah, it's still, these last three years have been quite a roller coaster for everybody. But yeah, it, the young people, I can only imagine like how this has been for them, especially at different milestones. Like my nieces, I've watched them deal with it, graduating in the year when the world just shut down. So it's been a lot to take in, I'm sure, just even more for these young people to try to figure out how to make a life and all of that. And it's it's interesting because I think that as a professor, the biggest or the most profound difference I've seen, and I've had to change, change the way I teach a little bit, is that they depend on me a lot more than my, they're less independent because they were at home for so long. And I noticed that they like, I don't know, they come to office hours a lot more, like they forget to eat. And I'm like, go to the snack drawer, get yourself a snack. I feel like um, it's almost like they were stunted a little bit and like that, that growth because they were at home with parents and still, you know, living as opposed to like going off to college. And so like, I don't know, I always think that freshmen in college look so young, right? But now I see them and they do, they're really like baby. I just feel like I have to take care of them. Um, And they're adorable and I love them. But I really do feel for them. It it was a that's a I can't imagine my high school was never great for me, but um to be like completely isolated seems like it would be very difficult. So your book uh came out and you had video of you opening up your boxes and revealing the cover. The cover is gorgeous. Yes. But there's one video in particular that I have a question about, and that is the one with your grandmother. Oh dear! Here she and is. I, I don't know if anyone has asked, asked we love about it. So it's such a cute video. You know, you're yeah. talking about the names of the characters and how she was like, you know, why they don't have normal names? And <laughs> but the video cuts off because you're showing her something in the book, and I'm wanting to know what what was the reveal? Was was there a special name that was in it? 
that when you showed it to her? Oh, when I originally showed her the book and I was asking her, um, so, mm, okay. Well, it's kind of, I was showing her the book, but then I ended up telling her something about a different book. Oh. Is when it off. And that's when I technically can't talk about that thing at this time. But yeah, she, I think it's hilarious. She's, she's, I live in a, oh, I don't think I've ever, I live in a house when my parents retired. I moved, they were like, Amber, we'll build you a library if you move with us. And I was like, bet, I don't love Northern Virginia anyways. And so <laughs> I moved to Charlottesville, my parents retired, and then my grandmother lives with us part-time. There's like three generations in this house. Um, and so it's always really, really funny um, to see specifically her reaction. She's turning like 87 this year. And just how blunt. I just love it. I just love it. She just... When I told her the names of my other characters for like upcoming books, she also was like, why can't you just have a Mary? Like, is it that difficult? And I was like, it is grandma. Like, it's a thing. We like unique names now. Um, but she she gets on me all the time. I really time. like how she gave your characters even nicknames. And she said, that's my baby. And I'm like, oh, that is so sweet. She, she will do that. And also like, It'll, it takes her a while. I've already given her a copy because I got my copies early, but she reads all my books. Like, and that just makes me so happy. Um, I really do. And then she'll want to talk about them a little bit. And I don't know. It's just something where uh, I, that's just another priceless thing. My grandmother has been a huge part of my life, my whole life. Um, we used to be sent to my grandmother's house for the entire summer. Um and we used to be like playing in ponds and creeks because she lived in the country. And so I think that like, it's weird. I think it's weird for her to see like, this is my adult grandbaby writing all these mature books. And she used to be running around the house barefoot, stepping on beehives accidentally and things. So like, it's just a really special thing um, to have. And I, I just feel really privileged to have my grandma here to, to see it all. Yes, that is a. I I love I I love my grandma too, but she passed away in in the Philippines in the midst of like the COVID. So, you know, I I like when you were talking about like the house, like this is my grandma's house. Like it feels like you know it feels like it's her house, but it's not lived in. You know, it doesn't feel the same. I'm like I know exactly what she means. Like everything is like there, even the smell, that dirt that you left when you went for like college is the same dirt that you're going to come back to when you visit during the summer. Yes. That's like, it's a, a house. I don't know. I understand that houses are built from like brick and mortar. Right. But like, I feel like our souls sink into them at some point, like the people, like it, they're there. There's a whole feeling um, around it. And as like a person who practices hoodoo, that's a huge aspect of that practice is, really communicating um with your ancestors and creating a relationship with them even when they're gone so we have a couple of questions left and then we'll we'll let you go um and so the first question uh has to deal with uh, you had some book news back in uh, September you along with Taylor Bias and Erica Martin will be releasing a poetry anthology called Poemhood our black revival 
you all represent the grand African diaspora with each writer coming from the Black, African, and Caribbean corners of the world. How did this project come about? Ooh, um, okay, it was like pandemic time, right? And I was talking about how it was frustrating that my students had to pay for such expensive books um, because there was like nothing that was like one thing. And then my agent was talking about how um, there are no poetry anthologies with just Black poets. And so like together, I was like, what if we did one on like folklore and African-American like diaspora? And she's like, that's a great idea. Maybe she rep also represents, my agent represents Taylor and Erica. And she was like, let's bring them on. So we'll have like a team of people. And so then I was like, all right, let's get some writers. Um, so it's like me being like, hey, friend, <laughs> you please. Hey, Rita Dove. Um would you like to write a poem for this? And so like, that's where it, it really started. And we pitched it and it was purchased. And we are, I'm literally tonight emailing the first full rough draft to my editor to look at, but it's been really great. And let me tell you, cause I've seen all the poems now. Whew, they are good. Oh. They are good. And what I love is like some of the poets who usually write for adults were writing for young adults for the first time. And they're like, how, what's the difference? And I was like, there isn't, like, there really isn't. You just have to remember your audience. So like, you could talk about death, but would you talk about death differently to a young person? Like, just remember that. Um, and they just hit it off, like first try. Everyone's like, these poems are amazing. Um, but we're excited to have Kwame Alexander and Rita Dove and Nikki Giovanni and all these amazing, amazing Black poets. We're ready. I'm Fire. ready. I, I was so ready. That book is literally going to be on fire in, in our hands. Yes. No, I'm so excited. <laughs> They're just so fun. It's like, I don't know. I This is my first, first full thing I'm editing with my team of Erica and Taylor. And getting emails, like you don't know when someone's going to send their poem and they have a deadline, but it could come earlier, of course, a couple of days late. And so as they were coming in, it was like, I'd be like at the car wash, like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> It's just been so fun to like collect these like gems from these writers. I'm really excited about it. Uh, when is this slated to be out in the world? Right now it's January, 2024. So a year. Um, and it's like I said, it's pretty much put together at this point, but you know, the whole process of covers, advertising and um, the few late stragglers who still need to turn in their poems um, <laughs> that we love, but they're very <laughs> <laughs> uh so that kind of thing but we're pretty much pretty much there and I just think it's gonna be a wonderful learning tool where it'll be a well-priced book about the same price as this that a teacher can use through a whole poetry section of a class and I just think that that's something that we don't have uh specifically for black poets Emma McBride changing the world y'all changing the world <laughs> bringing all the poetry making kids love poetry please that's, that's what's because I've said it before in an interview, like, I think the best writers are poets. Mm. I'm just because when you said, like, if you if you want to um, communicate a feeling, you go in like, you know, verse in lyric form when when you have like a perfect like theme in mind, you can write prose. Yeah. I've, I've, I've said it to poets. I'm like, this is why you write so good. Mm -hmm. Yes, I it think it's it is a. It is, a, I think, a obsession with words with poets and the obsession of making words that string together, whether it's in verse or whether it's in prose, sound like poetry or feel like poetry. Yeah. 
So our last question that we like to ask everybody when they come on to the show, we want to know what are your top five favorite books of all time? Or, or what are your top five favorite books that you are most excited about that you want people to know that might be coming out or that just came out or just something that you just like, it can't leave your your atmosphere? Um. Okay. I'm gonna do a combination of both because I don't know that I could... First of all, Blue Eye by Toni Morrison is my favorite book of all time. Uh, also followed by, and this is a slightly controversial one, but The Chronicles of Narnia um, by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite like first like series. Um, if you, is it here? Oh, it is up here in the corner right here. Um, Cameron Battle and the Hidden Kingdoms by Jamar Perry is an African fantasy, middle grade fantasy that I'm obsessed with. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and then, see, I always have my friends around me. Um, oh, good. This is, oh, good. Yeah, This Appearing House by Ali Malinko. She is brilliant as well. Um, that book is about a girl who, um, Ali has had had cancer when she was younger, and her or not younger, like a kid, but in her life. And she always talks about how nobody talks about the kids that live. Mm-hmm. Like the majority of children will survive um statistically and so it's about a girl who survives cancer but then she's like afraid that it'll come back mm-hmm. um and then ace of spades is another really good one but i think that right now my all-time favorite book is a collection of poetry um called lighthead by terence hayes it came out almost maybe a decade ago now but it's the best co- poetry collection i've ever read it won it either was a National Book Award finalist or won it. I don't remember, but it's a brilliant collection. Well, there you go. She did not hesitate. Yes. I, oh, it all. <laughs> <laughs> I said I was prepared. Um, but thank you so much for having me. This has been, it's always great when you're on a, a podcast where it just feels like you're chatting. Um, and this has been wonderful. Well, like, thank you so much for joining us. It this, means a lot. This is, this is, this is so good because I was like, um, it was the f- like a very great start to our new year. You're the first book that we've read for this year. You're the first interview that we've done for this year. And for like the stuff that we're trying to do, like at least for me, it's like, you know, I'm like, oh, the 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 universe is telling me like we're in we're in a great, we're in a great pace. We're following the yellow brick road. We are. <laughs> yeah. The universe is going to make you keep going that way. They're like, you're doing a great job. You just got to listen. You just got to go with the flow. But I know that you'll have a lot more wonderful writers on here. And I really appreciate you asking me to be here. Well, thank you. You enjoy the rest of your day. I hope you find a nice show to watch and a cup of tea to drink on. Yes. <laughs> Get a nice fuzzy blanket. I'm ready. I really am. I've got sweatpants actually on. So like, we're ready. Look at all of us. We were like, nice shirt, sweatpants. But thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amber. You are brilliant. Keep writing books. Please don't stop. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Our show has been produced and edited by Preston Long. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. Our theme song you've been nodding your head to is by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Follow us on Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Bye!